0: Hey everybody, this is episode 10 of Artist Soapbox. Hello and welcome to Artist Soapbox, a podcast featuring artists from the Triangle region of North Carolina talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. That's right, Soapboxers, this is episode 10. We have reached double digits Before we get into this episode with playwright and screenwriter Ian Bowater, I wanted to express my gratitude to you for listening, for sharing, for your comments and support. I'm thrilled with the growth and the trajectory of this podcast, and I really hope that you are too. I have 15 interviews already scheduled with Triangle Area artists between now and the end of March, and we've already begun planning for additional artist soapbox projects for 2018. Stay tuned. In this episode, I'm speaking with Ian Bowater. Ian is an actor, writer, and director. In a prior life, he began in theater and education and later became associate director at Theatre Royal Stratford East in London. Moving to the Shaw Theatre in London, he was its director for five years. Another move took him to Los Angeles, where he spent 24 years working in the film industry. He was director of creative affairs at Odyssey before applying his trade as a screenwriter. He has written over 30 screenplays for producers in the U.S., England, France, Germany, and the Netherlands, including Murder on the Cape, which will be on Netflix next year. Since relocating to Chapel Hill five years ago, he's worked with Little Green Pig Theatrical Concern, the Art Center Carborough, and Theater in the Park. We'll spend this episode digging into Ian's newest play, Millennium Boy, which will be featured in a reading for the public during the week of December 10th. We'll learn more about Ian's collaborator, Huli Lammel, who himself collaborated frequently with Rainer Fassbinder, the well-known and controversial German filmmaker. Ian will share some writing tips for playwrights and screenwriters, and we will consider the impact of our family on the stories we tell ourselves. At the time of this recording, we didn't have the details for the reading of Millennium Boy, so check the show notes. We'll put the day, the time, and the location there or you can find it on our Facebook page. Hello, Ian. Hello there. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I thought we'd start with a synopsis of the play that we're going to be talking about. The Millennium Boy by Ian Bowater and Uli Lommel concerns Johnny Reinhofer, 17-year-old son of Mike Rennie, German emigre, working in the music industry, Johnny has been radicalized by a white supremacist group that has big plans for him. Mike asks his estranged father, Sebastian Reinoffer, to visit and help deal with his grandson. With a fractious history as father and son, Mike and Sebastian must deal with the family's own Nazi past first. What is the meaning of the title, Millennium Boy?
1: Johnny was conceived on Millennium Eve. And so he was born in the 21st century. And several other characters have mentioned the play were born at specific moments in time. But in terms of the uh, the group that become interested in him, they see him as a, as a person with a past, mm. which is helpful to their course, but he is new and of the 21st century. Mm. And the idea of... Uh, This group that are trying to uh, corral him to their their way of life and thinking is based upon them wanting him to become a future leader who would be charismatic, attractive, and attractive to the young without a lot of the baggage that the old neo-Nazis really bring with them. Hmm. That's the idea of what they were doing. That is not to say that those people will not keep their old, tattooed, swastika strewn past
0: mm-hmm.
1: in, their, in their political views.
0: Mm-hmm. So he's attractive to the contemporary and future.
1: Yes, yes. They, they realize that they have to be mainstream. Mm. This is happening in Europe quite a lot right now. They're rather appalled by, uh, you know, the street fighting past of other people because they know that that turns people off. However, they know that it gets them in the news mm-hmm, immediately. Mm-hmm. But since two thousand and seven, January two thousand seventeen, views that they hold are much more in the mainstream now. Mm-hmm. I think I told you that we that we started working on this play as a reaction to uh, President Obama being elected. We noticed that there was a lot of racism that came out from that. And Uli and I were in California at the time. Hmm. Uh, and I've been a long-time supporter and patron of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And We were constantly getting stuff about clan activity it within 25 miles of downtown LA you you normally think of the KKK as being something in the south well it's not it's everywhere and we saw them getting bolder and we started writing this play then and and some of it was pure fiction but as it happens now it was just prescient mm-hmm. and when i came to look at it again you know, uli Gull is back in Germany now. And when he came to look at it again, he said, "So why don't we revisit this? Because he says, I think it's time's come. Mm-hmm. And we started looking at it in terms of stuff we know that happened in Europe and stuff that we know uh, certainly happened here with nationalist groups, you know, which get a legitimacy through people like Steve Bannon. Mm-hmm. They aren't crawling out of the woodwork. They're right on the streets. And they're not all leather clad uh, weirdos right. so they're frat boys from duke mm-hmm. and from yale and from harvard and all sorts of universities across across the country richard spencer and stephen miller both spent some time at duke
0: right, right. And that doesn't
1: say anything about duke but it says something about the class that they come from
0: why did you choose this subject I mean you said that you became aware of the increase of activity after President Obama was elected but what was it about this subject that um, inspired you to write?
1: Well I, I've i done more projects than I should, ever should have done on time set in Nazi Germany. One of the first things I did was a Uh, a project for some German producers on the Night of the Long Knives. And so I did a huge research into the rise of Hitler. And these were people who were connected with Uli, and Uli had done that sort of work, and we just talked about it. Hmm. And one of the things that both Uli and I are really concerned about is that the, the horror of Germany is actually only 12 years long. Mm. The Nazis were only in power for 12 years. But they impact so much, and every other appalling uh, white supremacist group rides on the back of the Nazis. If they want to get attention, if they want to upset, if they want to poke and rile, they think about Hitler, they have... uh, Uh, nazi salutes Mm -hmm. remember charles manson had a little swastika in his forehead um and uh you know and sometimes some of it is an image which is there just to provoke and other times it's about a deep-seated set of beliefs Mm -hmm. that they are just hanging on to Mm -hmm. and part of what the uh Sebastian and and Michael in the play say is that you're not going to ride on the back of our history, mm-hmm. so that's where we started, and and a lot of this was you know I was working on the movies with Uli, and this is what we'd be talking about whilst we're having a drink after the day shoot was over, you know, and that, and then one day he he came to me with this the thought of this idea, and um and we just worked on it. From there, and basically, he's a quite a big ideas man. But when it comes to actually getting it down on paper and shaping it, and I think he thinks that I'm probably a a better writer at that sort of thing, you know. And he's most of his, uh, although he's done a lot of theatre work in his life, most of his writing has been uh, for film for screenplays, you know, and stuff like that.
0: With your experience as a screenwriter, why did you? decide to make this a play rather than a screenplay?
1: Because if it was a film, it would be all about doing demonstrations ah. and going out and going to other places rather than specifically looking at the ideas. Theatre theatre's a medium for ideas and talking through ideas, arguing ideas in dramatic context. Film is visual. And your dialogue, you try and keep to a minimum. Uh, you have to do a lot of really fancy shooting to have a very long speech mm-hmm. in a, um, uh, in a film, and for it to remain interesting. But this, in this case, it's a dialogue, and what we have is there's a reveal at a certain moment in the play, where where Michael takes his father up to Johnny's bedroom, and you find that it's completely covered in Nazi memorabilia, swastikas and white supremacist sort of imagery. Mm-hmm. And he's like living in his world and not allowing his father to go into that. Mm-hmm. And and that's much better done in theatre because it's just it's just one moment in a film. It's the precise moment in a piece of theatre. Right. And so it, that's that's where that's where we worked from, you know. And it was uh, and most of the time. I mean, I met Uli doing a play about Father, uh, a screenplay about Father, the true story of Father Christmas, and then we did another one which was about a kid and a pet monkey. You know, these are things which were so outside the realms of this. Mm. And then he got me a job adapting a book, which was a big sort of. Um, Stephen german style stephen king horror movie that we worked on you know he always said to me i miss theater and all that sort of stuff so we just decided to work on a play and this was the idea because it's so full of ideas and and also a debate of what is right and wrong about those ideas so that's why a play works much better for it
0: you know Let's talk about your relationship with Uli, because we've mentioned him several times, but yeah. the listeners don't know who this person is yeah. or anything about your relationship, which has spanned 25 years you've had a yeah, creative relationship yeah, with yeah, him?
1: Yeah, more than probably, closer to 30, almost after I came to LA, I met him, yeah.
0: So you told me that he is a German actor, director, and producer, and was a collaborator uh, with the Fassbinder films
1: oh yeah i mean but long before that his father was a guy called manfred lommel who was a musical actor and also had a radio career before the war survived through the nazis and had a career afterwards and not many people you know managed to survive that his father would tell stories of being invited to the chancellery Mm. and uh, having a good old laugh with Hitler and all that sort of stuff, you know, because Hitler, part of Hitler, was full of banality and just ordinary. He was just an ordinary working-class bloke and loved old jokes like that. Mm. And so uh, Manfred Lommel had that sort of career. And Uli's mum was much younger than his father, and she was one of basically one of his groupies. <laughs> and Uli was born in December of 1944. And they told his mother to get out of Berlin because they would be safe out of Berlin. Mm. And they said, Well, where would I go? And they'd suggested Dresden. <laughs> So there's there's all that kind of story And he would tell me great tales of that But he was a child actor too He was was on the stage from about the age of 15 And later on he was in some reading for something And Fassbinder was there Fassbinder said to him, what are you doing tonight? He said, oh, I think I will go for a drink He said, no, you're going to come and shoot a movie with me And they were working on a movie in nights And they had a really close relationship. I think Uli sold one of his sports cars to finance the movie. And and that's how close they were. But, you know, Fassman, if you know anything about him, was a very edgy person. Mm -hmm. And they were in all sorts of crazy stuff together, and things Mm -hmm. like that. And Uli then went on and started directing films. And he directed a film called The Tenderness of Wolves which is about a serial killer and it's done in a really uh, great uh, German expressionist style. It was quite, because it was, it was like somebody was protected by the police who was the serial killer. Mm -hmm. And so basically the underlying theme of it is that, you know, this death and destruction is, Is actually sanctioned by the state Mm -hmm. And this is back in like 1978, 79 Mm -hmm. And that was a time when German society Was still not dealing with anything Mm -hmm. Any of this stuff Mm -hmm. I mean Uli told me a great story about Because I'm English and he's German And we love talking about football and soccer And all that sort of stuff And he told me when he was a kid They used to play soccer on this piece of waste ground That was a bombsite Wow and, and one of the kids said to him, you, you know, it's a great piece of ground because it's a bomb site." And Uli said, because he was like six or seven, he said, well, what do you mean a bomb site?' He said bombsite from the war. And Uli said, what war? Ah, right. Because nobody had talked about it and it was, you know, this stuff was passed on. And I think that. Uh, you know that's always been a theme with him and it's a theme that's that's mentioned in the play that the history of germany is to look the other way right if you don't like if you don't like what you see right you know it was a, just a natural relationship that we uh, uh that we had and uh and we started working on stuff and we basically projects that he, he was doing i was the um, assistant director on one show which went to uh, we went to the Berlin Film Festival with it and it was basically a 30 years on from being there with Fassbinder hmm. and sort of like he was um he was revered as much for his past as he was for the the film that we did and he did lots of uh, he there was a movie called mm Man the original boogeyman. The, the title was taken by somebody else, and they had to pay for it. But it was the highest-grossing independent horror movie, huh. and it it just it was made made on a shoestring and and really grossed well. Huh. When he first came to America, it was part of the factory with uh, Andy Warhol, right. and he was you know and he became like you know. The German contingent of that, because they knew about him from the movies he'd done with Fassbinder and things mm-hmm. like that, and eventually made his way west to Hollywood. You know,
0: and, and that's where you met him.
1: Yeah, in right. L.A. Yeah,
0: right.
1: I met him. I did a project. I did an adaptation of a Bram Stoker' novel called The Jewel of Seven Stars, and the associate producer who was on that was a friend of Uli's and he said, "Oh, I've got this friend Uli and he's got." a commission to do a play about Santa the real story of santa claus uh and it was all about german santa claus
0: so for this particular play you said that you were the writer and he is the idea guy the
1: joint it was a joint idea but when he actually i mean some some days you know i was i was at the computer and he was he was looking over my shoulder but a lot of the time i would sort of like get a scene going and he would then sort of like come in and and sort of like do that, I mean I work with a lot of writers like that mm. Guy Arthur Eggly who I've done three movies with, that's how we work the, on from his ideas, this one was much more of us discussing the politics of uh, the early Obama years and what we saw was coming mm. and actually we really were prescient on it, I, I did not, till I came back to look at it, I did not realise how close it was because in Europe there's a there's a group in uh, in austria who are involved in trying to take back the white identity and they say that they're not racist they call themselves identificarians
0: well that's a fancy word
1: yeah well yes well you know when when it's mentioned in the play you know michael the the kid's father when he says i mean i did he says pass me a shovel i've got a lot of bullshit to deal with yeah cuz that's what it that's what it is but two weeks ago there was a a, a radio documentary on be on the bbc of saying what's new with the alt right and starting to talk about this and they're trying to clean up their image and right. become more and more mainstream
0: dangerous idea
1: oh incredibly dangerous and it's and it works in exactly the same way if you know anything about the massaging of Hitler's Mm -hmm. image and all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. you know we uh, I mean one of the things that that young Johnny does in the play he says he's got a job and he's selling bric-a-brac and antiques and he's going around to swap meets but what he's actually selling is Nazi memorabilia right and and that's a way that they start talking to people and people don't say oh i'm going to go out on the streets with this
0: right
1: they, they oh i'm just interested and i'm collecting it right. you know it's I'm a historian yes yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's part of it's part of our heritage of course right. which
0: everybody says now yeah so one of the things that you and uli have in common is uh living in america for a long time mm-hmm. but being raised up somewhere else yeah. do you feel like you have a different perspective on contemporary America and Americans, because I think it's interesting that you chose to write this play, which is about contemporary America. Mm-hmm. Um, and that must be informed by both of your observations.
1: Well, it is I mean, the thing is that i I always said when when people used to talk to me about writing, uh, I always said, "Write what you know." is the dumbest thing that you can do. And Ishiguru said the same thing a few <laughs> weeks ago. And the thing is that you, because if you write what you know, you write about yourself. And, you know, I think that writers are anthropologists and they're, they're inside yet outside the community. And it's that kind of Levi Strauss thing mm-hmm. of being part of the community but separate from it to be able to look at it. Apart from when I've been writing in Europe and doing historical projects, I've written specifically about contemporary mm. uh, things. I ha- My second screenplay, I, I, w- I got contract with a company in Paris to write screenplays for them, and they, the first one I wrote for them was My Own Story, and it was about a, uh, a private eye who was asked by his sister to find a marine who had... Uh, who had witnessed a rape in the military. Very contemporary idea. I wrote it 25 years ago. Hmm. Even more contemporary that he couldn't find this Marine but falls in love with this woman and finds out that she she was the Marine and she's a transgender person.
0: Wow. 25 years ago you wrote that?
1: 25 years ago. I wrote it and I was halfway through it and I went to see The Crying Game. Okay. And When the reveal was in the crime game, there was a little voice in the back of theatre <laughs> going, oh, "That's my screenplay." Yeah. So, so I, you know, I I just kind of like kind of weird, strange relationships like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And most of them are America. First time I came to New York, I I thought I was home. I love New York, and I worked with a company in New York for a while, and then uh, I had no qualm about moving my life to LA within a matter of weeks after I met my wife and you know it's and I've never bought into the American dream or anything like that and I've always been skeptical of it but you know it's I think that outside of you does help you so like see something in a in a in a different way and a lots of uh, Ameri- uh Europeans have done you know people like lassie Hallstrom and mm-hmm. people like that that they they've come with that jaundiced foreigner's eye mm-hmm. that looks at a situation
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so that's that's kind of how we how we roll with these things
0: right right it's a struggle sometimes when you're in something so it's so close to your face that you literally cannot focus on it you mm-hmm. can't gain any perspective and mm-hmm. so it's It takes a lot of work to have that kind of Mm -hmm. clarity. But when you're coming from another point of view, another Mm -hmm. experience, then you can just put your Mm -hmm. finger on it more readily. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to talk a little bit about what your plans are for this play. You have a reading that you will be doing the week of December 10th Mm -hmm. in Durham. The venue, the time are to be announced. Yeah. And the proceeds from the reading will benefit Black Ops Theatre Company. Mm -hmm. Listeners may remember that Jamika holloway Burrell, the artistic director and founder of Black Ops, was a featured guest on episode five of Artist Soapbox. And during that episode, she spoke about Black Ops Theatre Company and also about her plans for the Bull City Black Theatre Festival that will occur at Man Bites Dog Theatre in March of 2018. So tell me, why donate the proceeds to Black Ops?
1: Because I like Black Ops and I like Jamaica. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've had a number of discussions about uh, the Bull City uh, uh, Black Drama Festival. And I said, well, why do you need to do a drama festival? You know, just get on and do it, you know. But, you know, she said that's a hook for them. And, you know, stuff like that needs all sorts of support. And the only thing that I can really offer them is uh, the opportunity to make some money somewhere or contribute to it. I particularly like Jamaica's approach. She's fairly new to the game. She's willing to try anything. She has a very clear idea of what she wants. I mean, I've been involved in black theater since since the 80s in England. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, but the theater that I worked at had a black theater policy. Of of casting and all sorts of things, and and I, I took that to, um, to the Shore Theatre myself, and you know I, uh, one of my great uh, claims to fame is that the Murdoch Press in England uh, had a headline which said "Widow Twanky is Black for Lefty Panto," (laughs) and it was because I, a famous black actor in England, I got him, I convinced him to play the pantomime dame in England. And also the, uh, after that we did uh, Cinderella and we had uh, BJ uh, was a great singer and a lovely actress and she played, uh, uh, she played Cinderella for us. And it was only the guy, Paul Medford, another guy who played buttons, told me much later, he said, you know, I had a lot of work to do just helping her with the press because she was the first black Cinderella hmm. in Britain. And I didn't know that. Wow. <laughs> it didn't occur to me, right. you know. Right. It was just a, just something mm-hmm. that we did, you know. So, you know, I've seen, you know, black theatre from all sorts of points of view and sort of we had a very clear policy at the theatre for promoting uh, work from lots of different communities of interest, you know, mm-hmm. the gay community, women's work. And, you know, I think that all the time, I can't believe some of the conversations that we're still having to have about this about who who is casting what play and why and all that sort of stuff. I mean we we brought uh, I brought the Negro Ensemble Theater to the Shaw Theater hmm. with uh, with Samuel L Jackson playing in in Sam Art Williams home. So it was I've kind of come full circle. I'm in North Carolina now and doing stuff about that. So right. you know, I'm at the end of my time and it's just great working and getting some creative jump leads on somebody who's (laughs) on the beginning of their time, yeah.
0: Right. What do you hope to get out of the reading as a playwright? Well,
1: in the first instance, to see whether it's bullshit or not. Because sometimes when you do things like this, you know, and we've written about this and we've done it earnest and we're telling everybody that we think this is exactly how it is and you should listen to us, and people might just say, yeah, you know, really, Ian? Yeah, is that what you're thinking? And there's other bits of it which are, uh, you know, have have we quite got the relationship right with the people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you know, it's like we have this character who is like this full-blown Nazi, who who comes in formal dressed for afternoon tea, wearing a Nazi <laughs> uniform because Lord. that's the sort of thing. And originally, I was going to have a big bull-headed guy. Uh, and then, then I thought again. I got somebody who is, you know, not 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 ugly in themselves, but ugly of spirit, right? And uh, in some ways that they might be attractive, although he's obsequious to the man who he thinks is his idol,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the grandfather in the story. Mm-hmm. But you know, and I just want to see how some of those things work, and also there's jokes in there. I want to see if people laugh at them, right? And and some of the jokes are kind of like towards the edge of, you know, up against the uh, the situation that you're talking about. and That always needs to be uh, tried out. Right. And uh, then after that, if we've got it sort of right, Uli's working on something in Germany that we might be doing it in Germany. And I'm gonna sort of like try and get a get a production of it done here somewhere. <laughs> Uh, I think it's it's a rather well-made play in that thing it's a nice Mm -hmm. five-hander and uh, it uh, it's the sort of thing that a a decent-sized regional theatre company could do Mm -hmm. and there's enough of them in this area that know exactly what we've what we've been talking about. So right. that's that's the next thing that I want to do. I don't wanna do I don't want to just so sort of like, you know, throw it on. I'd like it to get a proper production. Yeah. I think you and I have talked before is I'm I'm not interested in directing my own work. Uh because I've found that other directors directing it for you, you get a better perspective on it and that you can and they can, you know, particularly the director will tell you straight away what's not working. Right. And I'm hoping that we can get enough friends into the room. Ultimately, I don't care if they don't if they don't make a donation to Black Ops, but I'd like them to be able to say, oh, I thought that was all right. But I, equally, I'd be, since I've been forthright with everybody else, I hope mm. they'll be forthright with me and they say, I don't get this. Right. Or I think that that's a bit harsh or that you've got your own political assumptions under this which aren't quite how the world is. You know, I'm, right. I'm prepared to, uh, you know, tell them they're wrong.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but that feedback yes. is so important. <laughs> I mean, it's so necessary, mm. and I can't think of the number of times, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, where you, you've, you've read it, you've rewritten it right. in your house, a million times And as soon as someone Speaks it out loud In a room It's it's completely different For me yeah. it's like This horrible gonging sound yeah. That's like That's terrible That's never going to work You know And then someone will laugh At something that I didn't know it Was funny So that feedback You just can't get it Any other yeah, way
1: And tell me about it I can't stand myself Reading it but <laughs> my last typo call on it Is to read it out loud Oh, And when I read it out loud Myself I just think Oh that could be better And suddenly I'm reworking the line And then I forgot about doing the typos and just reading it and saying <laughs> where was i in the script and you can be endlessly endlessly just uh making uh, adjustments yeah in the film business it's called the polish whereas in fact most of them actually need a complete rewrite hmm. which is what i found with another play that i did i i had it read at home with the best actors in the triangle i had I had them all there. Mm-hmm. John Allard, Derek Ivey, you know, people are, mm. uh, uh mm-hmm. Linda Clark. And and I got to the end of it and I said, I didn't even wait to say, what, what do you think? I well, thank you very much. There will be a new version of this play.
0: <laughs> Let us never speak of this one again. <laughs> no, no,
1: no. I, I'm, all I'm saying is, it's still the same play because it's it's going to be the same play, but it's not a rewrite. Right. It's a new version, and I think that you. This is what I used to find because I, when I was a director of creative affairs, I'd work with a writer, uh, and you'd say, "Let's have a rewrite," and um, And they they really don't want to do a rewrite. They just want to tinker with it a little bit. I mean, there's another project that I was working on and I was asked by the director to write write notes. I wrote five pages of notes and I gave them to him and he gave them to the writer and they didn't address one of them. I mean, and it would have just been politic. To address one or two of them, right. just to just just to pretend you were listening, you know. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's how it is, and you have to respect that in writing. If they don't want to write that, you can't make them write right. it, you know.
0: Right. But the point is that you are open to feedback from others oh, as something that is valuable in your own process. Because mm. if you, I mean, I, when I'm doing this, I always think, well, if I if I had that information, I would have done this differently. Mm. And the only way I'm going to get it is from Mm -hmm. someone else to tell me because I've used up all of the information I have and Mm -hmm. all of the ideas that Mm -hmm. I have. So please, someone, tell me something that you see. Give Mm. me something to work with because writing can be pretty solitary experience even when you have a creative partner oh,
1: yeah. mm-hmm. you're kind
0: of hanging out by yourself in your yeah. own mind with your computer an awful lot so it's wonderful to have a community who will respond ask questions yeah. and also they sometimes say
1: some say they say the simplest thing that unlocks the door
0: mm-hmm.
1: why did you get that character to say that i would have thought that other person would have said and then you start thinking you think oh you swapped the whole thing around and the same information is coming out and the same character can say exactly the same words but they will say them differently because they're another character and it, it just takes... You know, and all the best ideas. You said, "Yeah, I thought of that I was going to do that." Anyway,
0: I, was, <laughs> I just yeah. haven't gotten around to that yet. <laughs> exactly. Say so. um, that story because we talked about this when we were having coffee the other day, and you just alluded to it, but I want to bring it up a little bit more. Um, a good writing tip that either you came up with or someone told oh, you Paul about Chart. about the reversing yeah, of the yeah, characters. Yeah, if
1: you see if it's seen if you feel the scene's not working. Or it just seems too comfortable. Just and let's say it's a two-handed scene. You just swap the dialogue around so the other person says it. Mm-hmm. It may not be the answer, but it's just that thing of of having the the outside eye. You're looking at it in another way, and all the time you're trying to look at it in another way. Because one of the problems I have with a lot of people, a lot of writing that I see, is that they can't hold more than one character in a, in their head at the same time yes and and at best it's two characters mm-hmm. although i have to say that the millennium boy there's long scenes which are just father and son and father and son talking to one another mm-hmm. and that uh, it not all of it is around The table but I used to read a lot of scripts And you could find where, where They'd they write a script a, a scene where there'd be five or six characters In it and you know somebody said Something because they've just thought Oh he hasn't said anything
0: So and so hasn't said anything <laughs> so so in Three pages what can I have him say Yes yes I've I've noticed that yeah. In my own scripts yeah. too when we've done a table read I'm like wow that person's been quiet For a really yeah, long exactly. time I think I forgot him was... also
1: do you know the thing I was talking to uh, Little Green Pig about this with with their improvisation thing, you know, you don't have to be on there talking all the time. Sometimes you can be a character that's just stuck. And did I tell you the story about in new york because I, I I'm the one English actor who hasn't got an American accent, <laughs> and I was doing this thing in a with the creative arts team from New York, and we were in, in in a school and it was all about conflict resolution and and what happened is that they would start a scene going, and this 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 argument would develop, and I was so like sitting there and I was just sitting there, leaning on my arm and not saying a word. And when they got to handing it over to the kids who were the audience and saying, okay, now which character do you want to speak, do you want to ask a question of right now? Hmm. And they all pointed at me hmm. and they said, and they said, well, why him? He said, that dude's just been sitting at the back, watching it all the time, and he hasn't said a word now he knows something we don't, oh. <laughs> and it was just that it became a focus, and it made them look at it because they were they were all thinking what 's that guy going to mm-hmm. do mm-hmm. when's he going to jump in and it was and I always say when I was training people in spontaneity, the power of nothing is important you don't have to be the one that's there talking all the time and moving the story on and adding to to the narrative you know and you have to know when you know it's don't just stand there do something most of it's don't do something just stand there right and let it happen to you and i think that that's a kind of a uh, it's a good maxim to go
0: (laughs) i love it well i want to go back to millennium boy because i had the opportunity to read the script, so thank you for sharing that with me. And I wanted to dig into it a little bit and Mm -hmm. ask you some questions about some of the themes and the characters. So this, as you mentioned, is a five-person or five-character play. You have one female character. Her name is Serena. Why did you include her instead of having a cast of all men? Because it is really... It seems a lot about the mm-hmm. relationships of the men to each other. So what mm-hmm. function does she serve in there?
1: Well, several functions mm-hmm. it serves. You learn from the story that that uh, Johnny's mother died, and died quite suddenly, and his father hasn't been able to deal with that and has basically made their bedroom a shrine to her. And they haven't talked about that. Mm-hmm. And that's where he's be- become radicalized because he's gone into his own world and then found these people mm-hmm. who will talk to him and that's what happens a lot of the time is that vulnerable kids are made to feel important in these ways and particularly intelligent kids which clearly uh, uh, I think I've created Johnny as an intelligent person he's not he's he's just not a whatever dude kind of guy he's got opinions and he thinks them. secondly that I wanted to sort of like have something which was about his father, and what his father's work was and how his father's work had diminished Mm -hmm. and he's down to trying to produce individual artists and this is a woman Mm -hmm. and this is a woman who is a woman of colour and that is an affront to Johnny Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and that uh, there's all sorts of things about serena which is an affront to johnny one is she's half his father's age mm-hmm. secondly she's a person of color thirdly she has a stage name not her real name mm. and that she's so she's in johnny's mind she's like a bit of a fraud right. of who she is uh and also there's the scene at the beginning where Johnny catches them where he's just congratulating her on doing a good take and they're in a hug which becomes something a little more and a bit more sexualized
0: he, his father and, it, and
1: and and Serena, and, Serena. Mm-hmm. and he sees that and he confronts his father on it mm-hmm. and he confronts his father about sort of like letting his hands roam a bit and mm-hmm. sort of like uh, and that is a whole thing about the duplicity of that situation it's particularly because the song that she's singing which is about hey you can look at me but keep your hands off me you don't it's a me too song mm-hmm. and and that he hasn't uh listened to that when he storms off to his room and and michael goes out of the room to see block the character who's mm-hmm. been in she goes up to the room and tries to repair with him mm-hmm. and says to him I, I thank you for coming to my defence so, so I'm being sensitive for her mm-hmm. and, and in the end when the denouement has happened it's in his arm it's in her arms that, uh, uh, that Johnny ends up and being consoled mm-hmm. by this mm-hmm. and you know I I am sure it's it's it is a generalisation in one sense, but a lot of the uh, this sort of like very radical right wing and aggressive politic is male driven. It's testosterone driven, mm-hmm. and yes, of course there are women who are fellow travellers of this, but occasionally there are women who aren't, mm-hmm. and you always felt that if. Johnny's mother had not tragically died; that there might have been another voice in his ear that mm-hmm. would have helped him and uh, and understood him, whereas you know, uh, Michael and Johnny are so contentious with one another mm-hmm. in exactly the same way that Michael was contentious with his own father and left-wing politics and left mm-hmm. uh, uh, and left Germany because of it. You know so. I really, even you know, when I did into the breach at the art centre, which was about you know five men going away to war, I still had them with a with a hospital nurse mm-hmm. there who was someone who was being very caring to them and understanding mm-hmm. for them, mm-hmm. and uh, and also quite historically correct. She was uh, uh, she was a lesbian. Oh, As well. That's right. And very often that that they, the, you know, that those women who were, went off to war and drove the ambulances and worked in the things, they were politically motivated people. A lot of them were lesbian women or women that, weren't looking for a relationship to do anything for men. They were looking to do something for humanity. And I always think that, you know, whatever whatever you're talking about, you want to try and get humanity in there somewhere.
0: Right.
1: And I right. think that that's what Serena does. Hmm. And serves a purpose in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And also, I've asked Joe jo Rose to read it. Oh, <laughs> as well. Yay,
0: Joe Rose. And I, oh, she'll uh, be great
1: in that. No, no but the thing is that she, you know. I, I I think that she's whatever else she wants to do, and I loved her podcast when she talked about her other artistic endeavors. But I directed her in a small piece, and I saw with with you in a piece, and I think she's a really interesting actor.
0: Mm-hmm. You you mentioned this idea of family patterns that continue, and inheritance seemed to be a very strong theme in this. Mm-hmm. Um, play that you have written including even at a subconscious level Mm -hmm. uh, the level of dreams do you often write about inheritance or is this something that came up well in this play practically
1: everything I have written has got some allusion to fathers and some relationships my father died when I was 12 Mm -hmm. and I never had the luxury of growing up with an adult father and to have bounced my educational ideas and my political ideas off him. Mm I don't know. I, I never had the luxury of being a disappointment to him, you know. I don't. My my sister told me some time ago. She said you probably wouldn't have been, you know. You did all right, but the thing is, it 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 is always a thing because I think that you know this is you know ghosts. Sins of the fathers are visited on the sons, and although they fight them in many ways, you suddenly find that there seems to be a sort of like a dramatic loop going around mm-hmm. in families,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and it's. Uh, you know families are political units too
0: very much it's so it's just
1: it's not and and also you know that you don't always have to agree with your 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 parents or their parents point of view it's nice if you do mm-hmm. and it makes thanksgiving a lot easier <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know there's some, yeah but i think it's about uh, my mom who was an ordinary working class mom and brought up four kids uh, as a single mother mm-hmm never ever once told me what I should do and said you ought to do it like this you ought to be like that uh and into the point where she she said another sister told me because I had three sisters she told me that that one day my mother said "Kay, do you know what Arian does (laughs) to (laughs) which (laughs) my my sister said, "I haven't got a clue, mother," you know, and it was just left at that. You know, the, well, the, no, she knew I worked in theatre, and she knew I got in the papers occasionally, usually for the wrong reasons or something <laughs> like that. You know, having upset the Murdoch press. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think that's so sweet though that's lovely, <laughs> well, she didn't need
1: to know right she just knew that I was happy right you know? and then she loved you and it didn't. Oh, absolutely yes, and it didn't absolutely matter. Right. my mother never once called me darling, but not for a day of my life did I not think I was loved yeah it's, you know it was and that's you know I come from a sort of like a a Yorkshire family, and we're supposed to be bluff and all that sort of stuff, but you know it was you know it was it was a very Caring household, that mm-hmm. I write a lot of women in my plays and and stuff like that, and I always think that you need those voices in there. In fact, the the movie that we just did, the one Murder on the Cape, which you've kindly said is going to be on Netflix next year, uh, but you can buy it beforehand on Amazon. <laughs> uh, she, the, it was me and Arthur who wrote this script, and it's about a woman who has an a aff- uh, uh, sort of like a very bourgeois middle-class woman who has an affair with a-, a local fisherman type figure and he's married and all that sort of stuff. And there were lots of scenes between him uh, and his wife and stuff like that. And um, Arthur's wife, who is an actress, it was playing the wife in the thing and she worked a lot on the dialogue and suddenly I see one day it says screenplay by... Uh, Arthur Egley in Bowater and Heather Hayes and you always go oh, right but but you looked at it and I was the first one to say she's done a good job on that mm. because mm. those voices are much more authentic inside because mm. often we try and write something that we don't know and we write what we think that person should be saying right rather than that they that they do say right awful things
0: right yeah. oh yeah and and again, going back to what we were saying earlier, that kind of feedback is essential.
1: Um, yeah, in- absolutely. And also on films, it work it works a lot all the time because it's just the way that things are shot. You need to be able to say something another way, mm-hmm. and, the, and unless unless you're on a big budget and the writer's on the set, you're either phoning it in. Or you're doing something else. And, you know, you you got to take your ego out of this. You know, those scenes were better because Heather had worked on them.
0: I want to tell you about one of my favorite exchanges in Millennium Boy. And that was when Johnny, the grandson, says to his grandfather, Because you are who you are and I am your descendant, I have a thousand years of history. And his grandfather, Sebastian, replies, and who do you think I am? And in your play, we see over and over again the assumptions that family members make about one another that are false, and the holes in the understanding of the family history because it is not – it is undisclosed. And mm-hmm. I find in my own family, we are very forward-looking people. Mm-hmm. It's all about what's coming next, and mm-hmm. we're going to continue you know, onwards and upwards. Mm-hmm. And, and so – family history isn't part of our common language all of the time. Mm. We don't know a lot about, Mm -hmm. we don't share those kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I have friends who spend a lot of time around the dinner table talking about, remember when grandpa did this and, you know, your great grandfather did that. that," And we don't really do that in my family. And so a Mm -hmm. lot of assumptions are made. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is a really interesting, for me, that really popped out In a positive way in your play
1: Yeah I think that 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 happens But also there's other things behind that Mm -hmm. Because when Johnny talks about A thousand year of history He's talking about the thousand year Reich That never existed as well And so that's an illusion in the thing And also later on when when sebastian exposes block Mm -hmm. and tells him who his family really is he says doesn't ancestry.com suck (laughs) you know because everybody goes everybody goes to there i've never ever been interested in the history of my family Mm -hmm. in the same way that i think that you're Mm -hmm. talking just didn't really come up. Mm -hmm. occasionally i found a couple of things that were interesting but it was it's not been a fascination of mm-hmm. me of mine largely because a lot of people who get fascinated in it is that they're desperate to have found to find that they are somebody because of something that's been and something that's happened before you know you can be fascinated by that and the and you make a lot of assumptions about who people are mm-hmm. i have assumptions about a father i didn't know i right. knew uh, I knew that he, whenever, he never shirked from explaining it, anything to me. Uh, and cause I remember that when I was a little, about six or seven years old, there was a thing called the collar bar strike in, uh, uh, at the railway station in London, where they were stopping black workers from getting jobs in the union mm. and i I asked my father then at the age of six i said what 's what 's a color bar strike and he told me he said "Some men don 't want black people to come and work with them, so they 're using the union to stop them and then he said that 's not what unions are for, and it is wrong mm. and I heard that when I was uh f- five, six years old. I went leafleting for the Labour Party with him. But I would have loved to have found out later on that his politics weren't mine
0: mm-hmm. in the same way. Mm-hmm. I
1: know he was a Christian and I was. I know he said, he. my sister told me he said his prayers every night and mm-hmm. I've been a confirmed atheist and all that sort of stuff. You know, and I would have loved to have had those debates with him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you don't do that, but you fill in the gaps. And you make him that decent union man who is trying the best to work with everybody. And that might not have been the case. Right. You know?
0: Right. This is very interesting.
1: My mother's father, an interesting man who was a heavy drinker and was physically abusive to my grandmother sometimes and occasionally abusive to my mother when she was like 16, 17 year old girl. Mm -hmm. And we always just thought this was, you know, he was a bricklayer, had plenty of money, hard-drinking man, and he just got drunk and lashed out. We actually found out that he was a manic depressive. Mm. And he tried to commit suicide twice. And then when his mother died, he actually did commit suicide because he couldn't cope Mm -hmm. without this woman. Now you think all that, and you sort of like you make it make an adjustment towards that. Mm -hmm. But then my nephew went and looked on ancestry.com and actually found that my grandfather had an older brother, Mm -hmm. and his older brother died on the first day of the Somme, Mm -hmm. and a year later, my grandfather got his girlfriend pregnant. They weren't allowed to get married. So my mother was uh, lived with her grandparents and her mother for five years until they got married. And he must have heard all the time, your, your brother died a hero for right. you and you can't change that story. And look what you've done. You've just gone and messed up your life. And you just know that must have been ringing in his ears. Right. And that's the sort of things that you can find out about people. It's those little bits of the story i mean in in the play it's a damn huge thing that that you actually come across that that they don't talk about right but it's but it's something that happened one afternoon and was never spoken about again mm-hmm. you know so it's and that's that's what happens in families mm-hmm. if if you choose to look
0: Right. Well, it's the thing, I think it's called the unknown unknown. Mm. So it's, it's the piece of information that if you knew it was there, it changes everything about how things are put together, but you don't even know it's there. And Mm -hmm. so that revelation Mm -hmm. is, it Mm -hmm. tears everything apart. And then Puts everything back together in a new mm. arrangement. I mean,
1: I mean, Johnny doesn't know anything about Sebastian, mm-hmm. and he's making assumptions that fit with this world that he's got. Right. And and actually, the people, the people who are nurturing him, know about his history and have not
0: told him. Huh. Yes. They they
1: haven't told him what it is, but they revere him for this awful piece of history, hmm. and that's you know that's the unspe- the unknown unknown.
0: Right. Right. Mm -hmm. The other um, very interesting theme in in the play is this idea of how adults use children to fight grown-up wars. And I mean literally Mm -hmm. how adults, you know, child soldiers, teenage soldiers, to fight these wars, they have no way of understanding. Mm -hmm. Um, But also how we use children in as you as you mentioned earlier these sort of local the local politics of the mm. family wars mm-hmm. and how kids are manipulated and used as shields and mm. all sorts of ways that they are used as pawns mm-hmm. in these different kinds of wars and because mm. i have two children this is of special interest to me but this is something of course that we see happening over and over again and is happening mm. now
1: and and actually although michael and sebastian are estranged in the story sebastian comes in as the archetypal grandparent oh he's all right he's doing all right good for him he's got himself a job and all that and he's and it's only when he's shown him the door Mm -hmm. and looked through the door and seen seen him there you know that he that he he suddenly says, okay, this is something else that's happening. Mm -hmm. And even then he wants to make it. Oh, well, it's a phase he's going through sort of thing, you know.
0: Right. Oh, yes. Well, I'm really excited to hear this live with five different voices. We will let folks know once we get the details about this particular reading. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to thank you so much for being here, no, uh, your time. thank you,
1: and also, yeah, I just like to thank you for Artist Soapbox because, as you know, I will say I am a Patreon, <laughs> and I did it after hearing just one one podcast, and I think it's just a very fascinating thing that we've got going
0: here. Thank you, Ian, so much for this very informative conversation. I love your stories. I love talking with you and hearing your wisdom. Mm-hmm. Artist Soapbox is brought to you by the Soapboxers, official patrons of Artist Soapbox. You can support the podcast via our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash artistsoapbox. For information about today's episode and more, go to artistsoapbox.org. And we're out.